Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Code Vine for August 9th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, uh, good to have you all both on. And here in about 20 minutes, we're excited to w- welcome on to the show, um, author of his brand new book and um, the head of Solidarity Strategies, Chuck Rocha. Chuck will join us to talk about that book and also about the campaign and his life and um, all kinds of things. So we're pretty excited to have Chuck on the program here in a little bit. But until then, we're going to discuss some matters. And the first one, one we've been talking about for a few weeks now, we've talked about parts of this, and that is this Senate election in Georgia, the special election, the John Ossoff versus David Perdue side. That's an interesting race, in, with, with, you know, on its own. But the special election with, I believe, 19 candidates total, five really, I guess, kind of well-known, better – well, I don't say well-known, but more known uh, resume candidates in this race. Uh, and there's just a lot of twists and turns that have been happening um, I, I kind of want to start off with the most recent – some of the most recent polling we saw. One was a Monmouth poll that came out at least a week ago, and it showed that Raphael Warnock was actually running behind Matt Lieberman. And both – or actually all three Democrats, including Ed Tarver, were running behind both uh, appointed Kelly Loeffler and uh, Congressman Doug Collins. Catherine. What do you first off make of that if that is the state of the race right now? Well, it doesn't really surprise me. I mean, we are a Republican state, and um, it takes a while for everybody to get to know the candidates. We are, they already know Kelly Loeffler because she's been in office. Doug Collins has been in office. I don't think very many people recognize that Matt, Matt Lieberman or uh, Reverend Warnock yet. And um, only people who are, have paid attention to the state legislature are going to recognize Ed Tarver. So I think that's sort of why – it's one explanation for why the polls are, are, are as they are. But I think that will change as everybody gets up on the air, if they do. And if uh, it looks like Lieberman is probably going to get some pressure to drop out after some of the stuff that came out this week. So that would change the uh, numbers a little bit too. Yeah, and we'll get to that because that was one of those storylines, if you will, that has happened in the past um, week or so. Uh, Tim, that poll, and that's not the only one, as you pointed out to us, that shows that um, really all the Democrats, but maybe most surprisingly, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock are not polling in even third or second place. Yeah, uh, 
Compilation polling right now has Loeffler at uh, 23, Collins at 22.3, Lieberman at 12, Warnock at 7.7, Tarver at 7, Slowinski, the Libertarian at 3, and the other 25% is split up among others or or is undecided. Um, Of course, we we see obviously there's going to be a runoff, and and the only question is is a Democrat going to make it? Right now it's it's increasingly looking like there might be no Democrat in the runoff at least according to the polling. Um, Luffler and and Collins seem to be convinced of this uh, as they are largely attacking each other. Uh, through ads and other means And ignoring pretty much The other candidates uh, I, I'm a little surprised at, at Warnock To this point too Now some people have been saying He's been laying low Saving his money Well, It's time to get going If, that, if that's been the case uh, But of all the candidates in this race he, he is one who has really Really, really surprised me By how uh, much he's underperformed and how low a profile he's kept to this point. Well, I will say, if any of the three Democrats want to get attacked by Kelly Loeffler, they need to make the Atlanta dream because she is fond of attack, attacking her employees because she's been she's been on the attack on uh, the Atlanta dream and the WNBA in general, even though she's a uh, team owner. Crazily enough, and we'll talk some more about that because there was a storyline there too. But uh, Catherine, you mentioned that book, and that book I saw a different posting on it. Then uh, Tegan Goddard posted about it on Political Wire, and and y'all know the commenters there are left of center, but they're a pretty pragmatic bunch. They're not reactionary, and, and one of them did make a good point, and I kind of thought kind of something the same thing. Although I had not read this book and probably would have no interest in reading this book. Um, but I'll kind of get to what – apparently one of the main characters owns a slave in the future. Um, one thing no, that there's no, – is that not right? I thought no, it was in the future. No. Is it – okay. Catherine, you must have read more of the book. Tell us more about it. He didn't own a slave. In the book, one of the characters has a fictional um, – like a fictional slave. Who, a fictional like, slave. It's in his like an imaginary friend. friend? Yeah, like an imaginary friend. Who, okay, um, an imaginary friend slave. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but that that just makes it not more racist, just more weird. And, and that was what I was going to get to. It's one that somebody pointed out all the comments, and I don't know if they'd read the book or what they'd heard. They said, you know, the race of the imaginary friend slave was not given, but I thought it was in the future. Was it in the past? I thought it was it's some no, future, future dystopian novel. It's in the future. Yeah, like it's in the future. Well, so they had a future imaginary friend slave. So I don't feel I was as wrong as it's also being fact checked. I mean, it was a, a futuristic book, futuristic imaginary slave, imaginary friend slave, slave friend. I don't know. Um, you know, this is obviously, and it didn't say that the imaginary friend slave thing was good or bad. It just was. It wasn't condoning it. And this is what I texted y'all. I'll let everybody know this. I said, is this more racist or more weird? And, Catherine, what's your take on this? Well, I think it's both. Um, 
I just think it's a strange. I didn't read the book. Probably no one did. And from what I've read, it just sounds like uh, it's like a trope. It's a it's a storyline that seems um, insensitive and a little bit we- a lot weird. And it just and it was only two years old. So or three years old, like it was 2017 or 2018. It just seems like a strange. Like if he'd written it 20 years ago, I might be a little less critical of it. But it's only been a couple of years, and I, it just seems like a strange thing to have written that book, and then two years later decide to run for the Senate in a predominantly African American. Well, in a community that, I mean, lives in Atlanta. So it just seems like a strange turn of events. Like, what? Well, I mean, then that's the thing, and, going back to that. If the slave, if the imaginary friend slave doesn't have a race, then the composition of Georgia and Georgia's Democratic Party may not be in question. I mean, slavery is bad, whether it's a Native American person on an Asian American person or a white person on a white person, whatever it is. It's bad, but it's. Like I said, I get back to think it just seems weird to me. It doesn't help his candidacy because it seems kind of strange, um, more than racist. Tim, what's your take? Strange or racist? Weird or racist? Uh, all of the above, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Bizarre. I was going to throw in bizarre as my go-to word of the day. Yeah, bizarre. Uh, but the, the the problem here, politically speaking, though, is were he and, and – for that matter, any of the Democrats are running in the polls right now. None of them needs any bad press to pile on exactly. top of this, because uh, I'm I'm thinking that 12 to 15 range is probably not his base, but his ceiling. And uh, I, I just uh, I, I I don't know where he goes from here. We're going to see if this. Hits him in the polls in coming days. I don't. I don't think it'll help him any uh, with with African American voters, especially. Very very obviously, they're going to be important in this race with so many candidates in the race. Um, not many of whom now I think will be voting for him. So he's probably going to regret this. Well, I think it may hurt him with African Americans because when they explain this whole thing, they're going to say he sounds weird. You know, they may have say he's racist. He sounds weird. Yeah, that hurt weirdo. him with me. <laughs> that yeah, hurt I mean, him with me. That's what I'm saying. And, and, I don't, and, and so it's not good press because it's kind of just strange. I, and, I, and you sound like, oh, well, should people not be creative and write books and all this? I don't know. It just it's just different. And, and I guess we're just kind of scared to be too different sometimes i don't know and um i i don't know what's going through his mind on that uh, but it, it was odd and i will say this uh, now let's get into the next phase of this and i don't even think we're gonna get all the way through this because there's like i said so many storylines let's get into Raphael warnock he has um not really made an impact in the poll even though he was probably the most recruited candidate of this race has raised the most money probably has the best consultant team he has some of the best endorsers i believe stacy abrams is the headliner there um really uh he has the 
underpinnings of a good campaign, but it hasn't translated. And somebody, I want to say it was Niles Francis on Twitter this past week, said, you know, he will appear almost dead last on the ballot after everybody scrolls through all those 19 names. Right. It will be the last one. And that's a real detriment. I thought, man, that's a great point by Niles about that. Um but I did hear he's going to put about a million-dollar ad buy in the field soon, like not even late this month, maybe even this week. And we're going to start seeing him on TV and things like that. Also, at Congressman Lewis's funeral, he officiated that funeral, and I thought did an outstanding job. Although, I mean, preachers, they're good at a few things, and, you know, speaking in public and conducting in funerals are two of them. Um, Catherine? Where do you think Raphael Warnock's campaign goes from here today? Well, I think it's um, uh, as much as I don't like TV ads, I think it's good that he's going to come up on TV. And um, I think he'll start being more visible, I imagine. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen at the – we don't know what's going to happen at the convention, but I would be a little bit surprised if he didn't have some kind of uh, opportunity to speak at the convention. Um, and I think he's just got to, you know, get his team organized uh, if they aren't already and start, you know, getting out there and getting some visibility, both on television, radio, you know, virtual stuff, um, all those, all those, you know, new tools that we're using so that people can get to know him and hear what he has to say. He's got a great yeah. story. Yeah, and, and Tim, do you think that this ad buy will be enough and this problem will be in 19th on the ballot, on one of those electronic ballots that may even have to scroll down off another page, do you think that will be enough to not only get him past Lieberman but past the second Republican candidate, which to me is still an unknown if it will be Loeffler or um, Collins that finishes one and two? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I – really am concerned now that he's going to run down the second place person in this race if those polls are right because I think Collins especially might gain a few more points in this thing uh, He he's just one that would very very strongly appeal to the most conservative voters especially the crowd that's going to vote for Trump uh, in this state And so I just wonder what, what he really needs Is for two things to happen He needs to start gaining And immediately establish himself As the Democrat in the race And he needs for uh, the good senator To have her numbers collapse a little bit And come back Toward him. Yeah. Then he's then he's got a fighting chance, but he has got to get out there and get going. Nobody knows who he is. I could go and and talk to the African American members of the Democratic Party up here, and I bet over half of them will never have heard of him. So you know that I mean I could if, if I added the the info in that he's the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church and all that guy. But if I just said his name, no, I, d- I doubt if they Yeah, and that's not going to be on problem. the ballot. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's problematic. You're right. That's, that's, that's not going to be on the ballot. Only his name is going to be there. As far 
as being uh, listed right at the end of all of those names, it would actually help him more if he was the very last one other than, say, maybe two or three up. I don't know exactly where that goes. But he could actually educate voters and point them in his direction if they look right to the end of the list. It would be like looking first on the list almost. And so that that actually would not hurt him. Uh, this thing isn't hopeless for him, but he's really got to get going, David. Well, bonus question. Tim, who is going to be the last voter on the ballot? Uh, uh, the last one on the ballot? You know, I really do not know. I, there's 19 names and I cannot uh, recall if there is one below him. He may be the very last one. Boy, he's right at the end if it isn't him. Well, he needs Zebulon Zyke Zephyr to drop out of the race so he can be the last one. Um, <laughs> you know, it might be, because I think you are right. That would be a good thing. Well, let's talk about it. Since, well, let's handle all the Democrats first. Um, the third candidate that's of note um, – I don't know if he's he current or former state senator Ed Tarver from Augusta. Well, okay. Uh, uh, another sure. bonus question there. Um, well, Ed Tarver. I mean, he's been he's the only one of the three that's been an elected official. I, I, I want to say he's former, by the way. Former. I want to say that. I want to say that. Don't don't hold me to yeah. it. And I want to say, as a prosecutor, I've met and spoken with him multiple times back when I was more heavily involved with the DPG. Um, Catherine, I don't know if you had too. He's a really impressive guy, too. He has a physical presence about him. He's a good speaker. Uh, he has, you know, legislative experience. Um, but he's just not getting the poll numbers the other two are. Does he have a chance to turn this thing around, in your opinion, Catherine? No. He's no, he is not, he is a former, uh, I, I just looked it up, he's a former state senator, currently uh, United States Attorney for the Southern District of Georgia. Um, I had his rules uh, reversed. I thought he came from the law to the state senate, which state sent to law. Um, but I, uh, I just don't think that it's going to be a really lo- lo- hard lift, big lift for him to get enough name recognition, and I'm sure he doesn't hasn't been as successful in fundraising as uh, the other two. So I think, I think it's a uh, big lift for him to come out of this. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe Matt Liebram's got a, a, an imaginary fundraiser that's doing great work for him. Um, but, you know, it just seems kind of crazy, seriously, that Ed Tarver has this bio and is running third to a man that we really only know just because his father was a state senator from – you know, well, ten states north of us, Tim. Yeah, but wasn't wasn't Tarver also a U.S. attorney? Like I think he was in the middle or something, like Doug Jones. Or something like that. Yeah, um, he's Doug Jones. That's what I just said. Yeah, yeah. United States attorney for the Southern District of Georgia. Yeah, yeah, I thought Current. he was. Uh, until, no, I'm sorry. From December uh, 2009 to March 2017. Yeah. I mean. Tim, and, and I'm going to um, do some housekeeping here after this just to let y'all know. But honestly, if you were to take Ed Tarver's bio and persona, personality, the fact that he's won a state senate uh, seat in Augusta, one of our largest cities in the state, if you were to drop, say, 
three million in his campaign, couldn't he be a credible candidate not only to win the Democratic half of this thing, and I'm using that as a metaphorical thing so I know it's a special, but honestly to win the whole thing? What do you think? Well, combined with his bio, yes. Uh, but, you know, $3 million would make a credible candidate of a lot of people uh, even without that bow, and I think that is what the big problem is with the candidate like Tarver. I'm just not sure that his fundraising has been up to par for what you would need to run a really strong U.S. Senate campaign. Now, I will say one thing for Tarver. Uh, I've seen a lot more of him on the internet with email and stuff, haven't you, Catherine? Than I have, yeah. say, Warnock. Yeah. Well, before y'all get any deeper into this special election, I want to welcome into our guest for the first time to the Kudzu Vine, political strategist and now author, Mr. Chuck Rocha. Welcome, Chuck. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, and thank you for coming in, because uh, from what I saw on Twitter, uh, congratulations are in order to you for this weekend. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got engaged to get married yesterday. Yeah, well, congrats on that, and thank you for giving us the time. <laughs> no problem. I just got yeah. back from uh, climbing, climbing to the top of Old Rag Mountain in Virginia to celebrate the day after, so I just got home in time to do <laughs> All right. Um, well, I didn't know from that lake. I didn't know if I was from Texas or, or up in the D.C. area or where, because um, I know you're originally from Texas. Well, uh, Chuck, the way we usually do this is I usually have, when we have an author on, we ask them about their bio, and then we talk about the book. But from my understanding, a good uh, portion of the book is your story. So why don't we go ahead and ask about um, your background, but then if you can tie it in where you need to, about your new book, T.O. Bernie. Well, thank you, and, and thank you. It's good to finally be on a radio program where people don't talk funny. Uh, so I recognize <laughs> that, and I want to lift that up. Uh, I grew up uh, in the deep piney woods of East Texas. It was about 16 miles to the nearest city on a working uh, little small family farm. Uh, I talk about this in the book, in the intro to the book, because I think it's really important for people to know where I come from and how I view the lens of politics to getting to run Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, the historic Latino voter turnout. But I think that because this, this city is so pompous and so full of people who think they're better than everyone else, I think it's important for folks to know that I grew up in East Texas, that I barely graduated high school, that I never went to college, that I went to work in a tire factory when I was 19, uh, had a kid, you know, not shortly thereafter, and so I and took full custody of him, so I was a single father most of my life. And growing up working on a farm, I really talk a lot about my papaw, my white grandfather. I had a white grandfather and a Mexican grandfather. My mother is white. My father is Mexican. Uh, but growing up, uh, after my father left with this older white man who taught me everything about a farm and planting and tractors and plowing and cows and pigs and horses and eggs and all the things that go with that every day, I, I really learned politics and what America looks like through the lens of people that we're trying to talk to every day. And, you know, it's just a, it's a common theme in our country that we can't relate with the people that we're trying to get to vote as Democrats, as a dirt road Democrat, because none of the people who run any of these campaigns have ever experienced any of that culture growing up there. And then I divided my time between 
you know, the Mexican side of my family and the white side of my family, the only thing that they had in common, which is a funny part of the book early on, is why I weighed, I weighed 310 pounds out of high school is because my white grandmother made the best southern fried chicken in a cast iron skillet you'd ever had, and my Mexican grandmother made flour tortillas every day. So that all made me to be a big old farm boy from East Texas who looked really, really Mexican. But as you can tell, as soon as I open my mouth, I sound like my white grandfather. So there's a there's a cultural competency piece that people always look at with me around Latinos, but they also don't understand how I have a, an in-depth understanding of Southern politics, Southern Democrats. And I go into a funny story about my first paid campaign being Ann Richards for governor uh, in East Texas. So that's kind of my bio piece leading into the book. Yes, sir. Well, then you wrote the rest of the book, and of course, I guess that's part of where it gets this title, T.O. Bernie. Um, actually, I coached volleyball team. Uh, volleyball team. I helped middle. I coached the middle, and I helped the high school. And asked one of my uh, players. Now, tell me again what T.O. is. She told me uncle. I said that makes perfect sense. Um, I took Spanish. It didn't take as well as it should have. Um, so. You named the book after your work for um, Senator Bernie Sanders, and, and kind of tell us um, the journey with that. Now, from my understanding, you actually were in play to run maybe the whole campaign, not just possibly the outreach to certain communities. Now, this is true, so I should be starting with this. You can actually get the book today on pre-sale. It goes, releases on the 19th, so it's like in 11 days, uh, 10 days uh, it'll be out, but you can go to toburniebook.com and you can order from Barnes and Nobles. You can order from Amazon there. You'll see a bunch of blurbs from a bunch of congressmen and people of power. And it tells the story to your point about, A, it starts off with the bio, and then it talks about what it's like to be in the room. What, how did we create T.O. Bernie? Because I actually got to run the whole campaign not just the Latino outreach. I was a senior advisor, so I got to hire most of the staff. I talk about that. I talk about what it was like in the strategy to actually win the state that we won with a great in-depth knowledge about the Latino outreach. But the, one of the stories that you alluded to was early on, uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeff Weaver came to me, Jeff particularly on this instance, and said when I was, I was interviewing campaign managers to hire and I was interviewing political directors to hire, and Jeff said, why don't you just manage this? You could do it. And, and this part's in the book, and I'll never forget where I was sitting at at my kitchen table when he asked me this. He said, he said, Bernie, trust you. And he said, you know what? I trust you. And all we really want in a manager is somebody that we trust. And that meant a lot to me. And I really had to go round and round with it to figure out if it was what I wanted, luckily. And I talk about this in a life lesson that I learned that I didn't do it, and it was the smartest thing I ever had for a number of reasons. One, I got to be over the campaign manager to a certain degree and run the campaign while he dealt with the, with the, with Bernie Sanders himself. Like I didn't have to deal with Bernie that much and being on the road and logistics and policy and policy rollouts, all the things that I hate. I wanted to run the campaign, the state operations, the staff, the voter contact, the TV, the radio, the mail, the door knocking, the texting the newspaper ads, I say all that because I just had, I got to run all of that and have budget authority, which ended up being so much better than, finally, I would say that I knew that within the first two or three weeks that I had made the right decisions because watching the amount of shit that he had to put up with, I know I'd have got fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, Catherine and Tim, they're going to ask some more questions about the book, but I did want to ask one non-book question that kind of relates to your, I guess, all the time work with Solidary Strategies. Um, 
And, and that is, in recent weeks, polls have come out that shows in this fall campaign, um, one area that Joe Biden's lagging is with Latino voters. And he's still got to pick his running mate, and he's committed um, that it will be a woman. Um, it's, it looks like there's a lot of African-American women that are contention. I believe there's maybe one, possibly two uh, Latina women in contention. Do you believe that um, it would help more than maybe anything else with Latino voters if Joe Biden were to pick a Latina as vice president? No, but it would be important. And let me say why I said no so quick. We whooped everybody's butt in the in America that played in this primary with Latino votes with an old white Jewish socialist Democrat. So you don't have to have a Latino to gain the Latino vote. But what you do have to do is what we do and what I outline in this book in super detail is how we spent a whole bunch of money talking to Latinos who had never been talked to before. So that's the most important thing. Now, if I could have done that and made it been Tio Bernie on the ballot or Bernie Sanchez or Bernie Castro, yeah, I could have gotten more, even more votes because there's a certain amount of people who, like myself, I look for a Latino on the ballot because we want to support our own. Uh, so it, it is helpful, but it's not the, the, it's not the golden arrow of how you do it. And if he was, you know, if I was giving Biden some advice, it would be like, it would be, hey, you got to spend a whole bunch of money. You got to start now. Around the vice presidential thing, the smartest strategic move he could make would be to put a Latina in as a vice president because he more underperforms with Latinos than any other demographic. But the smartest political move he could do is, how, is having a black woman for sure. Okay, interesting insight, and honestly, the, as well as Bernie Sanders did with Latino and Latina voters, um, if Joe Biden calls you up, that sounds like it'd be a good thing. Um, I'm going to give Catherine uh, the, the questions, and she's going to then pass it to Tim. Catherine? Hey, Chuck, thanks so much for being on with, with us tonight, and congratulations on your engagement. That's very exciting. Thank um, you. And congratulations on your book. I, I haven't had a chance to, obviously, to read it yet because it's not out, and I but I have like read some of the um, write-ups about it. And I have a question that I've um, always had like for years about, um, about Latino voters. Um, I know a lot of Latinos who are American citizens, some of them many generations of American citizens. And I fear that we focus on immigration with Latino voters altogether too much when I mean, I think it's important. It's important for all of us to think about immigration. But I feel like we, um, by by focusing on just on immigration with Latino voters, we ignore the fact that they're concerned about social security and health care and housing and, uh, and and education as much as any other uh, demographic. And so I just wonder how if you believe that that's true and how we. Um, how outreach to the Latino voters can be transformed by not just focusing on immigration, which I feel like we do a lot of. You're right. Uh, But there's also a nuance. So if you just look at polling focus groups and data, uh, and that's what most white 
you know, northern, privileged, I like to call them a bunch of woke white boys who are running all these campaigns, <laughs> they concentrate on, right? So like, they're like, here's the poll. We oversampled a few hundred Latinos, and their number one issue is blah, 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 blah. So you still need to make, use immigration, and this is the jujitsu that I did on the campaign that's in the book, T.O. Bernie, uh, to do both. The number one issue was healthcare with Latinos, because any Latino, and let's, and when we talk about it, we should talk in different terms. When you talk about issues with Latino voters, Latinos in general, if you did everybody, it probably immigration would be higher. But with Latino voters, healthcare is the number one issue now, and it was in 2018 when I worked on 32 congressional races where there was Latinos, it was number one there. We were doing focus groups in Latino heavy areas. Number two today is the coronavirus. Back then it was uh, education, and then it's some kind of the economy, whether it's minimum wage, access to a better living wage, or some other thing around the jobs and economy. And then immigration and other things come in at four and five. But when the white pollster came into Bernie's campaign, and I write about this at tobernybook.com, and he said, uh, here's the issues. If you're going to do a program, Chuck, you got to lead with Medicare or with Medicare for all. Well, if I was waiting to the last two weeks to talk to Latinos like every woke white consultant in America has ever done because they don't talk to us early and often. They talk to us late and after it's too late to get anything really done. I would have probably had only one shot at the pie and I would have talked about health care. But in this instance, I knew I was going to start early because I was running the campaign and I was helping put together the budget. So we were going to start seven, eight months in advance, which was crazy. So I knew I had a long time to talk about whatever issue said I needed to. But the first thing I needed to do was introduce an old white Jewish senator from Vermont who was a socialist Democrat to a group of people who had never heard of him and only knew him as a caricature because he ran the time before. So we opened up the conversation, almost to your point, talking about immigration, but not about wonky, his policy positions to do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, and we're going to save you from the mean deporter. Donald Trump, because that's how most people talk to us. What I did is I knew I only had one chance to make that first impression, so we made an emotional ad that we started six, seven months in advance that was, my name is Bernie Sanders. My father came here from Poland as a child when he was 18. He had no money in his pocket, and he could not speak English, and he wanted to just achieve the American dream for my family, and he did that. I'll never forget that immigrant story because I lived in an immigrant household, and I know how important it is to live that American dream that is part of that immigrant story. That's why I won't forget my immigrant story or yours. And what I've just did to you there is I've just connected to an emotion. I've connected to an emotion that makes you think about your grandmother, your grandfather, your mother, your father. And so that opened the door to have a conversation. And then a week later when I sent the next mail piece, You bet your butt I talked about Medicare for all and what Bernie Sanders was going to do for you. But the door that needs to be open is a nuance, and it's the same way they do suburban white voters outside of Philadelphia or outside of Detroit. Like they spend a lot of time talking to them about issue sets and commonality, and we spend very little time doing that with black or brown voters. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And we all – I mean, I think we've learned – very much in the last few years about storytelling and how powerful it is. I think, you know, we always talk about uh, Lyndon Johnson was really good at it. 
Bill Clinton was really good at it. And uh, we we have, uh, I think, lost some of that over the years to because of this polling and um, sort of constant um, metrics on everything. Sure. When really we've mi- a good we've, story. we've literally we've literally micro target ourselves out of talking to a whole swath of folks who would be Democrat and ideologically aligned with us, but because they've missed a few ballots or votes or because they've gotten disenfranchised, we just walk away from them. In 1990, when I was working for Ann Richards and I would go into certain neighborhoods, I walked, I knocked on every door. Yeah. Well, I may have another question once we go around, but I know Tim has a list of questions for you. Thank you so much. This was really um, enlightening, and I really appreciate your time. Tim? Yep, thank you. Good evening, sir. By the way, let me add my congratulations on your engagement, um, and and thank you and thank you intended for loaning you to us today. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, if, thank you. If the data is accurate, Donald Trump consistently fares better among Latino voters than he does among other minority groups. What's the reason for that? Because he's had a captive audience. So one thing is that we're not a monolith. And so you take uh-huh. a small, small percentage of the Cubans in Miami that make up some of that, that you'll never change. But that's not the 26, 27 percent, up to sometimes 30 percent, 33 in the presidential election four years ago that he got. So, A, there's a group of – there's about 10, 12 percent died in the wool, crazy Republicans, most of them Cubans, some of them just – Rich Latinos who Donald Trump is going to vote for their most well-being because they're rich. Now, the rest of that group between 12 and 13 percent up to about 35 are just Latinos who nobody else, especially Democrats, have taken the time to explain to them what Democrats are going to do for them. Because Democrats wait to the last few weeks to talk to them, and when they do, they horribly Google translate some English TV ad and put it on Univision and think that's their outreach operation, which is just false. You're going to reach about 20 or 27% of Spanish-only speakers. Now, they're older, and they are regular prime voters. But you, to my sister's point, just carved out a micro target and left the other 73% of that pie out. So what we did with Bernie and what's in the book with toburniebook.com is how we went in and targeted all of those Latinos, like in Nevada, where we whooped everybody's butt, got 73% of the vote. Well, there was 108,000 newly registered Latinos in Nevada that had registered since Donald Trump had been president. I started talking to them seven months out and talked to them on the average of 22 times before caucus day. That's how you run an operation where you're actually getting to them. And today, if, if Donald Trump is on Univision, Every night at 5 o'clock around the time Jorge Ramos is doing the news, which Latinos watch like it's religion, or Ted Koppel back in the day, um, and there's nobody else there to say any alternative narrative in in Spanish-language TV commercials until at the last minute, then you're going to siphon off 5%, 6%, 10%. And that's the difference in the numbers that you see. They haven't seen an alternative uh, uh, argument. And let me close with this. When I left Bernie Sanders and we closed the campaign down, I started a super PAC called Nuestro PAC, and for you verbally challenged, that is our PAC in Spanish. So I wanted a PAC that I could 
take to the community and get our people out, whether Joe Biden gave me a nickel or hired me or not. I knew it was my job to get them out. And today, so far, this cycle, just since Bernie dropped out till today, I've spent more money on Spanish language TV saying Joe Biden is a good thing. Donald Trump is the devil, uh, even more so than Joe Biden has spent to date. Mm. Um, you, you kind of helped me segue into my next question, talking about uh, outreach efforts. There, there has, of course, been a lot of reporting on outreach efforts for Joe Biden in the Latino community. But what about down-ballot races? You know, the U.S. Senate, in particular, is so important this year. Is there an organized outreach effort down-ballot for Latino voters? It's like you crawled into my ear and you're talking out of my mouth. Like it's the one thing <laughs> that, that I worry about all the time, and I've been saying this and raising the flags because I've told people to my point, brother, is that I just told you I've spent $3 million with Nuestro Pack. Whether Joe mm-hmm. Biden – and he, Joe Biden is going to spend some money. Like he's not going to walk away from the Latino community. Now, is he going to spend enough? I don't think so, hence why I created a pack. And I'm going to make sure I drag Joe Biden – kicking and screaming as an entire team across the finish line with Latino voters. If I've got to do it myself, and I'm literally doing that, but there is not the same, there's not the same amount of emphasis being put on the Senate races or the congressionals. I created my PAC so it would never go away. So I could maybe do that Senate and House outreach, but only if I've gotten funding. The funding that I've gotten so far is specifically only around the presidential campaigns because the Senate is just a closed good old boys club that's really hard to break into. Uh, and I haven't seen hardly any spending happening there outside of Arizona where the campaigns have all went up on Spanish language TV in Arizona for the astronaut Mark Kelly, who was married to Miss Giffords, who's an outstanding candidate, who's probably going to win. But I worry about Latinos in Georgia, Latinos in North Carolina, Latinos mm-hmm. in Colorado, in all mm-hmm. of these places where there's not been a direct investment, and I'm afraid I'm going to turn out a Latino who's going to go in and vote for Joe Biden and just walk back out. Hmm. Um, younger Latinos represent about 40%, I believe, of the registered Latinos under the age of 35. And according to a recent survey from the um, – Voter Participation Center, I believe it was. I want to, I want to give them the survey people the credit. Uh, they say that younger Latinos are just not enthusiastic about Joe Biden at all. Is it a, a failure of the Biden campaign to engage with these folks, or, or is it something else? It's two things. One thing is is that a younger Latino, and let's take my son, who's 29, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that In the beginning, when I talked about raising that little hard-headed boy uh, by, by myself with my grandmother, my mother, he's now, oh, my God, 29 and has two children of his own, the twin Rocha boys. <laughs> I like to call them Wyatt and Rowan Rocha. Uh, now, he on the voter file, brother, he is Charles Rocha. On the voter file, uh-huh. I am Charles Rocha. I'm Charles Rocha. uh in Washington, D.C., and he is Charles Rocha in Butler, Pennsylvania, where he is a welder for the Plumbers Union. And mm-hmm. uh, when I come home from work every day, I sit down in a chair. I'll have a glass of iced tea or bourbon, all depending on what my day was like. And then I will turn on a big TV and watch a baseball game, 
peruse Facebook while working on my phone. Now, I'm getting served information via MSNBC, via the baseball game, and also maybe via Facebook. My son, who's also Charles Rocha, doesn't even own a TV. He consumes all of his information off of a laptop. The boys have iPads they watch their, their cartoons on, and he's not even on Facebook anymore. But we are all still talking to old man Chuck Rocha with all of our Latino outreach. So the long story there is to say, A, we're not even having a conversation with these younger Latinos because they're not on TV, they're not on Univision, they're not on Facebook, and they're just not where the traditional woke white consultants are spending money. That's A. B, and the last point on this is that younger brown kids act a lot like younger white kids, and there's just a distraction of what I like to think of as youth, which in my youth meant girls and beer. And sometimes it's just even if you're a social anarchist, you can be distracted, hence why the turnout numbers have been small. You layer on top of that that nobody's really talked to you from the Democratic Party to explain what is our environmental issue, what is our issues for trying to make your life better as a young person, What's, your, what's our position on student debt? That's why Bernie Sanders whooped all their butts. A, we talked to all the young people, and then B, we were like, you know what? If you go to a community college, it should be free. If you go to a state school, it should be free. So not only were we having a conversation, then we were talking about the issue set that mattered to them the most. Hmm. I want to ask you one final uh, question, then I'm going to send it back to David. And, and I want to ask this question because – um, I'm interested in in how labor union folks think now, and, and you have a an extensive background in organized labor, and all my family was in organized labor. And, and I know that we lost a lot of union voters to Ronald Reagan in the 80s, and some of those voters never came back to us, and it really – haunted us, especially in the last election. Is Joe Biden the kind of fellow, because of his background, that can bring some of those union voters back to the Democratic side? Probably more so than anybody we've seen since Bill Clinton, to be honest with you. Uh, With Uh Barack Obama, whether people like it or not, and I'm a really bad consultant because I tell the truth most of the time, and the truth is that there was a racial... (laughs) There was a racial undertow when when Barack Obama ran, and there's just no way around that. Mm-hmm. He still won handily, mm-hmm. but in the union ranks, right, old-school white boys in tire factories like I started in, there was some race things. That's why I skip him and go back to Bill Clinton, who could tell mm-hmm. that powerful story, who would put his thumb in the middle of his forefinger and squint his eyes and look at you and go, I know what it's like to be in your shoes. I grew up in Arkansas. Uh-huh. Doe's Steakhouse, all that shit, you know, and and people would just eat it up. For all of the things that Joe Biden ain't worth a crap at, or even forming a good sentence half the time, he is really good with people and working class white people. I can tell you this beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I've got millions of dollars worth of polling from the primary to show you the reason Mm -hmm. and the biggest difference between Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton is that white working class males who you're describing vehemently hated uh, Hillary Clinton. Well, guess what? Mm. They don't They don't mind Joe Biden at all, and, they, and half of them really like him and think he's an okay dude. You sprinkle in a crazy president who's asking you to inject disinfectants to get rid of a virus, and they like Joe Biden even more. So it's the perfect storm of Kenny. <laughs> he has relatability. 
but also I've got polling that says that white males, you know, making between thirty and eighty-five thousand dollars, who don't have a college degree—that's the union worker to me and you, my family, your family—they like him a lot. Oh, well, that's good to hear. I want to thank you, Mr. Rocha, and I want to part by saying it certainly is good to interview somebody that sounds just like me. You know what I mean, buddy? <laughs> Always, my friend. All right. Thank you, sir. David? All right, Chuck, we've uh, just thoroughly enjoyed this and want to thank you for your time. And a way to do that is I want you to promote anything you need to, of course, the book again. But your firm, we had a candidate on two weeks ago. He's got to run in Dalton, Georgia, Rome, Georgia, uh, Calhoun, Georgia, and he needs a Latino vote. If you want to promote your company, and then finally, if you want to tell folks where they can see you on social media, here's your chance. Well, thank y'all, and thank y'all for having me again. You know, I, I really consider myself, I grew up on a dirt road, like a real dirt road, not like one of these country singers sing about a dirt road they ain't never seen, but like a real one that my papa had a farm all tractor that you cranked from the front end. So you real rednecks will understand that. Like, that's where I'm from. And I started a firm <laughs> called Solidarity Strategies, and you can go to SolidarityStrategies.com. We're here in D.C., uh, and that's my firm. You can go to T.O.BurneyBook.com to buy my book. And I am on Twitter, at Chuck Rocha, uh, and I'm on the Facebooks and the Instagram at Chuck Rocha, too, either, you know, a dot or an underscore, I'm not sure. But the Twitter is just at Chuck Rocha. It's been an honor to be on. You can ask me a question and follow up. But we need to, as Americans, go back to thinking about those dirt road Democrats if we're ever going to put this country back on the right track. Well, thanks again, and we're going to can't wait to read or listen to the book if it's going to be audio down the road. Have, there is lots of special requests from my country, but to read some uh, T.O. Bernie, so it is coming. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> listening to it if they get some prep school Connecticut kid to read no, it. After hearing no, you, no. I'm going to hear your voice. Right, y'all be good. i got to run. Thank you, sir. Thank you so Thank much. You, sir. Yeah, that was Chuck Rocha, uh, T.O. Bernie, his new book, uh, very entertaining and insightful um, comments from Chuck. Uh, well, let's get back into this conversation. We hadn't even talked about the Republican side of this thing. And um, I don't know if y'all saw it. I send y'all too much during the week. But this past week, there was a game between, I believe, the Phoenix Mercury and I know the Atlanta Dream. And coming in, some of the players had the Black Lives Matters t-shirts on, but at least half of the teams, including Diana Taurasi, who's one of the very best players in the WNBA, had a Vote Warnock shirt on. I mean, it was probably at least 10 of the players between the two teams that wore Vote Warnock shirts uh, to the game. I have never seen an ownership and player situation dissolve that terribly. Um, but Catherine, she is just absolutely running against her own team, and they her. <laughs> it's it. I loved it so much. I I I looked at that over and over and just thought how great it was. And then I also saw a picture of some. Uh, What's the name of the Atlanta team? The Atlanta, Atlanta Dream. Green. Yeah. I saw some yeah. of those players with the T-shirts on, too. Um, yeah, bravo to them. I mean, it took a lot of guts, for, uh, especially for the Dream uh, players, to put those T-shirts on. And uh, bravo to them for, you know, speaking up for what they believe and putting her on the, you know, 
on the list of, you know, like, you know, bringing up her um, lack of support for Black Lives Matter and her wishy-washy comments about it and just, you know, just all the things about her. So I thought that was uh, really brave and it made me smile and laugh and I really loved it. (laughs) Yes. Um, Tim, to me, this would be akin if you saw the Falcons or the Atlanta United running into Mercedes-Benz Stadium wearing Lowe's hardware or Ace hardware shirts or hats, um, you know, because Arthur Blank was a co-founder of Home Depot. But, but they don't do that because they, they, they love him to death. I mean, he is a father figure to them. They have a great relationship, and, and that's a good thing with sports teams, have a good relationship with honor. That in no way, shape, or form. Describes where Kelly Loeffler's at well, with her team. Well, can you blame them? Because her no. criticism of Black Lives Matter, especially as popular as it is right now with the American people, and especially considering what all has happened in the last two and a half months or so to change things around. You might as well have slapped those players in the face as said what she said. And my question is this. The thing with Black Lives Matter, is that not a a big, wide opening for Reverend Warnock to really get in this race by seizing that loudly? Yes, I mean, I think that's one of those things, them wearing those shirts that, I mean, theoretically they could have worn something for Ed Tarver, um, probably not, you know, the imaginary slave friend of uh, Matt Lieberman, <laughs> but they could have, I mean, but they chose Raphael Warnock because I guess he's considered the de facto Democratic frontrunner. So this may be what propels him to at least third place because he's got to get there in the polling first. And then he can make his move. It's kind of like a horse race. Then down the stretch, he can make his move on either Collins or Loeffler. Now, let's get into the next part of this story. Doug Collins, I thought, for the first half of this year, was in that lead position. He had actually kind of, to me, in a lot of ways, taken the lead position away from Kelly Loeffler. Um, He was the you know, conservative alternative, and we've seen for several cycles now, it's a race to see who can be more conservative, uh, who gets the nomination in the Republican Party. But I get the sense in the last month, kind of since some of the protests started, and then Kelly Loeffler has used the WNBA to attack Black Lives Matter, that she's used this with the most extreme um, Republican voters that are not comfortable with, um, you know, diversity to possibly, you know, retake the lead, if you will. Catherine, what's your stance? Well, that's a good point. Um, I'm not sure. I I have a hard time with figuring out, like, the difference between Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler. So, I mean, I I know, obviously, there's differences, but, um, yeah, I – I'm just not sure how they are going to play this. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, their voting records would probably be within a single-digit number of points. Um, yeah. The same. 
Uh, it might be a difference in style. I mean, because, like, you know, I've contended for many years that while Johnny Isaacson had a more moderate style, when it came down to the end of the day, he voted about like Saxby Chambliss and then David Perdue. Um, he probably oh, yeah. he, he had a better style about him. I don't think either of these candidates have interest in getting that style, and certainly Kelly Loeffler in the last few weeks has no interest in that. Oh, um, uh, Tim, break in with something. Uh, well, I, I was I, I had a, a slightly different take here on why she might have taken the lead. Uh, you know, I'm retired. I watch a lot of television now. I keep it on news channels that would show uh, a lot of political ads. They they would show more probably than, than the local network affiliates would. And to be quite honest, she is really piling up the ad money. One reason Kemp picked her is that she could self-fund. And yeah. she is throwing money into the advertising, and I think that's why she's moved a little bit into the polls, if not to take an outright lead to just pull herself even with with Collins. Uh, so let, let's never forget the mother's milk of politics. It's important. Yes, and one more aspect to this race that is relevant now, and that would be – this well, actually, there's two photos. There's one photo where um, Stacey Abrams is mid-court at the WNBA game, standing next to Kelly Loeffler. That's one photo. But there's another photo that the Loeffler campaign has been using a lot, and it's a photo of Stacey Abrams and Doug Collins. And Doug Collins has his arms around Stacey Abrams and is smiling. Um, and from my understanding, they had a working relationship when they were both in the state house. Now, in the past, candidates would say, I can reach across the aisle, and I can work with the other side, and that was considered a positive thing if you could have a meal and at least discuss your differences. But in today's political climate and in this race, Kelly Loeffler is using this photo and this, I won't say friendship, I think that's way too far, but this collegial relationship against Doug Collins. That's a really bad thing. What do you think? Oh, well, you're absolutely right. It used to be a good thing, and it's it's, uh, the kiss of death now. And uh, it's it's really too bad. I I don't know if you all have watched the um, John Lewis documentary that was on HBO or whatever it was on. but they they talk a lot about the the collegiality across the aisle back in the day, and it was really kind of um, made me a little bit melancholy for those days. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a, it's become a common theme to use those relationships against your opponent. And it's effective. Yeah. Tim, I'm sure you've seen the photo, too, and the way that Kelly yes. Loeffler put it into ads. It seems to be a new tactic, if you will. Um, is it working? How effective you, and how much life do you think she'll get out of this tactic? Unfortunately, I do think it's working. Do you remember when you and I went to see the late Cokie Roberts at Barry a few years yes. ago, David? 
Yes. Do you remember uh, her talking about growing up in Washington and how the congressmen's families all knew each other, barbecued together, Democrat and Republican. The kids went to school together. They were all friends. They never thought about not being friends. But now we are in a time where not only do people get in this tribal thing where they only want to be around others who think politically like them, but they actually enjoy and make sport of hating people on the other side, and it's only getting worse. What a strange world we live in when you show your opponent with a in a photograph being friendly with the most popular politician of the other party in the state, and you score political points off of that. That's really a sad commentary, isn't it? Yes, and I'll kind of do a finishing point on that. And it's really like Kelly Loeffler's biggest weakness should be and probably is those stock trades. Uh, and that dominated mm-hmm. the first half of this race, those stock trades. That was something that she did that was her actions and her choices. And then it seemed like she, you know, maybe that's just people have forgotten about it or don't think about it or whatever. And now she's using this picture, just a photograph of Doug Collins and Stacey Abrams together. And that seems to be a major tactic. And then working her own team. And league, I mean, it's really distasteful uh, politics. Um, it'll be interesting seeing how Doug Collins reacts. Does he sense he's in the lead, and does he have to one-up her and come up with something more egregious that we'll talk about? Or does he decide to be, dare I say, more of the statesman? Um, which would be interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't have predicted that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, um you know, it, it, it's, that's where we're headed, and it'll be interesting to see. I really do. I, I think while this race is not the swing district or uh, the one that's going to flip like a lot of others as soon, I think with this, you know, the five big candidates, the 14 other candidates, the incumbent that's never run, I, I think this may be the most fascinating Senate race in the country. I mean, it just – our other one seems to pale in comparison in a lot of ways, so – We've gone deep on it tonight. We'll try to stay away from it next week. Um, and so until then, and F- I think Tom Jensen's going to be our guest. Uh, Catherine? FYI, Warnock will not be the last name on the ballot. I looked it up while we were on the air, and there's oh. one more pe- person whose name is like Winfred or Wilson or something. It's W-I. Hmm. So. Wow. Next to life. Not, 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 you know, anything like that. Okay. Um, So he won't be the last one. So that, I think Tim's right. That would be better if he were the last one. Um, Well, thanks again to Chuck Rocha and his book, T.O. Bernie. And until next week, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom?
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.